Hey, we're going to get the big picture of the book of Titus. So I like to use the, the illustration of kind of jumping in an airplane and flying up to, to a couple thousand meters and flying over this forest that we call Titus and kind of getting a bird's eye view from way up in the air. If you're ever up high looking down on something, it's a totally different perspective than, say, you know, walking on a, on a trail, going on a trek or, or a hike through the bush. You know, you, you can see individual stuff, but from up in the air, it's a very different perspective. And that's kind of what we're doing. I'm just kind of hopefully whetting your appetite for the book of Titus, and I'd encourage you to go go deeper for a deeper study. But it's important that we get the big picture before we look at the, the, the specifics of it. So today, I find the, the book of Titus very helpful, uh, particularly as a pastor, as an elder, but uh, it's, not, it's not just for pastors and elders. It's a book that you should find helpful for yourself as well. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this book really helps to set the priorities for anybody who serves God. Did anybody struggle with that? I'm curious. Do you ever find yourself, man, there's just so much to do, so many distractions in life. What do I do? There's not enough time to do everything. If, if only I didn't have to sleep. You know, maybe I could get everything done, right? You ever feel that way? Well, <clears throat> Titus will help kind of set priorities for you. For anybody who is serving God, this book is helpful. So obviously we're looking at the book of Titus today, and you might say, well, well, who is this guy named Titus? Who is he? Well, you get some hints of who Titus is as we look at this book. He was a Greek convert to Christianity, Uh, Apparently, uh, Paul witnessed to him and he came to Christ. Paul calls him, if you look uh, at verse 4, it it mentions his name Titus here, who is the recipient of this letter. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. So this is apparently one of uh, Paul's spiritual children who came to faith in Jesus Christ. He he believed uh, the person and work of Christ. He became a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. You can read about him a little bit in the book of Acts, as well as in some of all other Paul's letters like Corinthians. Uh, Titus' ministry, though, focused on the churches in the island of Crete. And you're, if you're geographically challenged, like most people, you say, where in the world is Crete? Well, it's on an island in the Mediterranean Sea. If you don't know where the Mediterranean Sea is, uh, I challenge you to go look at a bigger map, but it's, it's, uh, it's between Europe and North Africa. And so that big Mediterranean Sea there, you'll see the island of Crete kind of right in the middle between North Africa and Greece, or modern-day Turkey as well. So who's the human author? Well, of course, the Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul. He's, his name's mentioned right in your Bible there in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. When was the book written? Well, it's... There is some conjecture exactly when it was written. We don't know the exact time, but as, as best as we can probably tell, is probably somewhere between 60 to 65. What was the purpose? Well, Paul mentions the purpose. He wanted to instruct his son in the faith, Titus, as pastor. Uh, he wanted to, to help the churches there, particularly in Crete, about what are the right priorities for God's servants. And in verse 5, Paul specifically mentions, if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There were some struggles going on there on the island of Crete, and there were some false teachers who come in, uh, particularly the, uh, the, the group called the, the circumcision group, Paul calls them, these were Jewish people who claim to be believers who are teaching uh, some bad teachings. And we're going to look at some of those here. And you say, well, what is the, the point of this book? What's the theme? Well, here's what I think the theme is. I'll put it up here for you. Because God is gracious, believers ought to embrace grace, proclaim healthy doctrine, and live godly lives. Those three points, I'll, I'll just highlight those for you as we go through the message. So if you're wondering what... What is the priority for God's servant? I hope you consider yourself God's servant. This isn't just for pastors or elders. 
or deacons, but these are the, the three priorities the Holy Spirit highlights for us from the book of Titus that we want to, or we, should, we ought to embrace grace, teach healthy doctrine, and live godly lives. So let's look at these three points. Number one, any, any servant of God needs to embrace grace. This book starts with grace. The key text in, in, in the book is about grace. It ends with grace. It's all about grace. And you say, well, what is grace? Well, there's a couple ways of looking at grace. It's, of course, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's enabling, uh, His, His power working through us. There's, there's multiple ways of thinking of grace, and certainly it will include all of those. But let me just ask a few questions as we look at the, the Paul's greeting here that's just loaded with grace. My first question is this. What is the measure of God's grace? What is the measure of God's grace? Look at verse 1. and Well, let's just read the whole greeting. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is the measure of God's grace? I hope you are a firm believer that God's grace is great. We see this in Paul's life. The very first word in my text here in my English Bible is Paul. And if you're not familiar with who the Apostle Paul was, Paul, the Bible says, well, Paul calls himself here a servant of God. Was he always God's servant? Well, if you know anything about Paul, he wasn't always called Paul. He used to be called Saul. That was apparently the name his parents gave him. But God changed his name after he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Originally, Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor of Jesus' church. But now, he, here he is, he's calling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And just the fact that Jesus would and could use someone like Paul reminds us of the measure of God's grace. It's great. It's great. It is, in fact, it's beyond great. It's very great. It's immeasurable. And it's, what a blessing to, to think that God would use someone like Saul or Paul and that he could pardon the worst of sinners and use them shows that God's grace is great. And I'm encouraged by that because we're all sinners. And we ought to be encouraged that God's grace is more than sufficient for us as well. My second question is this, what is the means of God's grace? What is the means of God's grace? It's mercy alone. It is mercy alone. Notice what Paul says there in verse 1 about the purpose of his apostleship. Paul doesn't tell others what they must do to become God's elect. It's not about what you do, but rather it's... No, school is not dismissed. So... <laughs> so. Class is not dismissed. Hopefully that won't keep going. So, <clears throat> it's not about what you do to become one of God's chosen people. Rather, it speaks of, notice it, verse 1, it talks of faith. It's faith that's characterizing those whom God has chosen. And you say, well, what's the point of that? Well, your eternal destiny, your eternal status is, isn't determined by your good works, by your human deeds. It's determined by God's love. Notice the order. It's very important. What leads to godliness? If you look at the text, it says the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. The order is essential there. And you say, well, why is the order essential? Well, godly conduct, your, your behavior, if, if you will, it, itself doesn't lead to a relationship with God. You can't do enough to have a right relationship with God. 
It's faith that leads to the right actions or the right conduct or right behavior. God is, is not waiting to love us until we somehow get our act together. <laughs> You're never going to get your act together on your own. Uh, he's not waiting for you to somehow straighten your life out so that you're you're somehow lovable in his sight. That doesn't work. It, it doesn't work. Paul makes clear here that the means of grace is his mercy alone. It's not based on you. Number three, third question here is what is the extent of God's grace? In other words, you might ask the question: How long does God's grace going to last? Is 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 it ever going to end? And the answer is, it's forever. It's forever. That's one of the things we see in verses 2 and 3. There's this wonderful hope of, notice, it's eternal life. (laughs) And did you notice what faith and knowledge rest on? What are they resting on according to verses 2 and 3? It's resting on the hope of eternal life. Not only does God's grace extend eternally into the future, but you need to understand that that God made eternal life before the beginning of time. He's totally in control here. And to me, this is this is amazing. It's cool. It's awesome. Whatever word you want to use to describe it. Grace began in eternity past and it extends into the eternity future. God doesn't see time the way we do. You say, what's the point? Uh, well, for me, you, you, we don't have to worry about exhausting this supply of God's grace because it lasts forever. It's not like what people think about uh, the fossil fuels, for example, or petrol, whatever you want to call it. You know, some people freaking out that, oh, man, it's going to end. Well, God's grace is not that way. You don't have to worry about it. It's, it, it's not going to stop. And then what's going to happen? Always going to be there. What's the effect of God's grace? Well, according to verse 4, we have a wonderful family unity. Just the fact that Titus is mentioned in the same context here with Paul is, is unbelievable, really. Because God's grace unites all believers in this mutual dependence upon Him. Because You have to understand something. Paul, do you know his background? He was a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. The fact that that a Jew and Gentile could ever come together and sit in the same room and have anything in common and have any unity at at all is only based on God's enabling grace. The the fact that these two guys didn't kill each other is because of God's work in their life. And, And that difference, by the way, is significant. But Paul speaks of Titus here as his true son in a common faith, and then Notice he offers him the the, the blessing of grace and peace from God. What is Paul doing here? What is he doing? He's looking past this ancient hostility that existed between the Jews and 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 these these Gentiles or non-Jews, and he's saying that they're of the same faith. They are united together in this spiritual family. Why is that? Well, it's only because they have a common Savior. That's how this is possible, because of Jesus, who gives the grace and the peace. Well, isn't this what the world needs? Wouldn't this solve all of the conflict in the whole Middle East? We hear this on the news all the time, right? I mean, how many people have tried to solve the conflicts in the world and failed? Right? They're never going to do it. Only Jesus can do this. King Jesus has to come back and sort them out. That's the only way it's going to happen. The world needs this truth. And the recognition that all are in need of a Savior is going to remove any any rationale for judgmentalism. It's going to remove the basis of our pride. That truth is going to kill the need for any comparison or competition that we might have. If, if you're one of these people who feels really competitive, you you got to somehow outdo somebody else, you need this truth. If you're one of these people who's always comparing yourself to other people, you need this truth. God's grace needs to be indwelling in you. Let me just uh, apply this in case you're not getting the point here. What if you're one of these people who says, well, you know, hey, my sin is just too large, or I've 
uh, you know, I've committed the, you know, some people think they've committed the unpardonable sin or, uh, you know, my sin has just gone on too long. There is no possible way God could forgive me. You ever, do you feel that way? Have you ever felt that way? Well, my friend, the answer is here. God's grace is great. In fact, God's grace is greater than your sin. Well, maybe you're one of these really sensitive kind of people who you, 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 you always feel like you never measure up to God's requirements. You know, it's like God's requirements are like way, way, way up there, and I just don't have the ability of getting close. You ever feel that way? Well, my friend, God doesn't save you on the basis of your ability. God bestows His grace by mercy alone. Well, maybe you're one of these, these tormented realists. You know what I mean by a tormented realist? <laughs> I hope you understand that. They, they just, they kind of, you know, it doesn't matter what happens in life. It's, it's you know, well, you know, they gotta, they, they've got a unique perspective on life. They're tormented by that. And they might say, well, hey, I can resist temptation for a while, but, you know, it's just never going to last. You know, I might be good for one moment, but there's just no possible way I can keep going in God's grace. Well, God's grace is forever. It is forever. So yes, you can keep going. And what do you, what do you say if, if you're one of these people, you're, you're timid, you're, you're fearful, you, maybe you, you worry a lot. What if you're one of these people who says, you know, I, I just can't seem to fit in. I, I feel like I'm, there's just something that's out of my, gri- my grip, out of my reach. Well, if you're one of those people who struggle to fit in, let me just tell you that God's grace unites you to His family. You have a spiritual family if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And He fits you in. So my friends, if you ever wonder, what is your priority as God's servant? Number one, embrace grace. It starts there, it's your whole life, it ends there, just like this book does. Number two, proclaim or teach healthy doctrine. What is your priority? What was Paul's priority? What was Titus's priority? What was Paul telling him to do? Well, in this whole middle section, he's telling him, proclaim healthy doctrine. You might have the word sound in your Bible. The word sound just means it's healthy biblical teaching. And there's two ways that the Apostle Paul tells Titus to do this. Number one, through godly character. How do you teach healthy doctrine? You can do it through your life, through your godly character. In other words, your life says something. Your life speaks. Have you ever heard that saying that your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks? And I know some of you who... English is a second language or a third language for you. I've just totally lost you, right? In other words, what I'm saying is this. It's a confusing English saying. just says, your life speaks. Your life says something to other people. All right? So Paul is telling Titus, look to your life, because your character, your conduct, your behavior says something through your godly character, hopefully. He's going to talk about some various qualifications for pastors and elders here. But let me just tell you this. These are the sort of qualifications and character that you should desire. Every Christian should desire these. Okay, But before we look at these, I just find it interesting because what we see in the Scripture here doesn't often match up to what churches look for in pastors and elders. (laughs) Just think about this for a moment. A lot of churches in the world, what, what is it that they look for in a pastor or an elder? Charisma is one of them. Yeah, so uh, I've just listed, uh, i got four, four big ones that come to my mind. Yeah, charisma might be one of them. So, so I guess maybe it kind of goes with human talent. What are, what's their talents or abilities? What is their intelligence? Uh, maybe their education. I know particularly in the United States, you know, you got to have a D and an R and a, and a full stop, right? 
If you don't have a D and an R and a full stop in front of your name, then we're not even going to consider you. <laughs> you got to have that piece of paper hanging on the wall. It says, I am a doctor of theology or whatever it might be, right? So education is hugely important to a lot of churches. Maybe their influence, you know, if they haven't written at least 20 books, then we're not even going to consider you or whatever, you know. So what, what is their influence or their human talent? These are a lot of things that many churches look for in a pastor. But let me ask you this. As we go through this list, do you see any of those? Does Paul mention intelligence, education, charisma, inf- you know, your, their talent or abilities? No, you don't. You don't see these. And so let's, let's read this list that Paul mentions. Chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's just pause there. We don't have time to go into great depth on anything really today, but let me just highlight and point out a few things. Notice in verse 6, Paul highlights a pastor's public reputation. That is something that needs to be taken into consideration when you're looking for a pastor or an elder in the leadership of a church. Verse 6 also mentions sexual morality, to be a a one-woman man has nothing to do with how many wives you have or you know other issues that are controversial here but see it, it has to do with a man has to be fully devoted to his wife that's the point here and to his wife alone <laughs> all right and in verse 6 it also talks about the family leadership how how a man of god treats his family how, how what kind of a leader is he at home needs to be taken into consideration Verses 7 and 8 talk about his personal character. Notice there's, there's nothing here about ability except for verse 9. It talks about teaching skill. Is the man of God able to teach the Word of God? Of course, that's important. But other than that, the, the talent or ability is not considered here. So hopefully you can see there that you can proclaim healthy doctrine through your character. But you notice Paul also points out to proclaim healthy doctrine through the silencing of false teachers. So your life speaks, we just saw that, but also your words speak. God cares about both. Cares about both. Your life and your words have to match up here. So look what the Bible says, starting here in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
very important that people of God proclaim healthy doctrine. One of the things we see here is you can do that by silencing these false teachers. Verse 11 says the false teachers have to be silenced. This is not an option. This is something that needs to be done. You say, well, how is it going to happen? How can that happen? Well, here's some things to think about. Spiritual leaders are to oppose false teachers. How do you do that? You overpower them with the truth. Teach the truth. You do it clearly and powerfully. So those who are, who are out there spreading error will, will, will be like a, a cockroach that has the light shown on it, right? That's the idea. You want the falsehood to be exposed for what they really are teaching. That's one of the things the Bible's telling us to do here. We, we're to oppose false teachers by revoking their right to preach. Some churches do that with false teachers. Don't give them the ability to teach or have leadership positions in the church. So, I mean, if a false teacher ever came in here, hopefully you would never give them the right to do that. Uh, false teachers are to be opposed by all believers living holy lives. Your life is going to speak. Your life's going to shine light on their life. Notice the effect in verse 11. Here's why they have to be silenced. These false teachers need to be silenced. In this case, these circumcision party were teaching of, uh, their, their teaching was, we need to add good works to Jesus. And by the way, that's false teaching, in case you missed the point. Whenever you start adding anything onto Jesus, it's false. It's an error. It's wrong. And that's what they were doing. But their effect in verse 11 is they're causing people to fall. And the fall here is a spiritual fall. That's why they had to be silenced. Their motive, according to verse 11, was they're doing it for money. Some of your Bibles might call it sordid gain. Uh, Basically, they're just doing it for the money. The consequence in verse 13 is they needed to be rebuked. If someone's doing this sort of thing, they need to be sharply rebuked. So before we look at the next section, I want to make sure you understand what grace is. Because we come to this next section, which is all about loving godliness. And in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, is, to me is the, the key text in this book. Everything kind of is, is, is kind of centering around this. And so we need to understand what grace is. God's grace is His unmerited favor toward sinners. You, you don't earn it, in other words. It's unmerited toward unworthy sinners. And He does this by delivering sinners from condemnation and death. The grace of God. And by the way, it's, it's, just, it's, it's more than just an attribute of God. In this text, we see that grace is also a person. And I'm not referring to my daughter. <laughs> One of my daughter's middle names is Grace. This is not, or you may have known somebody who's named Grace. This is not a human human in that respect. This is a divine person, and his name's Jesus Christ. So Jesus was not only God in the flesh, but the Bible says that he was full of grace. So please keep that in mind. We're not just talking about God's divine enabling here. We're also talking about a person. So that's, that's come to our third priority for any of God's servants. And we see here that They must love godliness. The key text, chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice verse 12. It also mentions that the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. 
Now, I've got a wonderful little outline, uh, three points that all have the letter P. It's not original with me. I can't remember where I first heard it, but I've seen it in various places. So here it is, right? All about God's grace here. And we're going to see, see this principle of replacement where you, when it, the principle of replacement is you put off something and you have to put on something in its place. Otherwise, you're just left with a vacuum. So notice that God's grace saves from the penalty of sin. Verse 11. We call that salvation or uh, the theological word you, you may be familiar with is justification. Where God declares you to be right with Him. So we see God's grace saves us from the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? According to Romans, it's death. Death is what you earn for your sin. Number two, God's grace saves from the power of sin. That's verse 12. We, we call that word sanctification. Where we're being set apart from our sin unto God. We're, we're, we're because of the work of Christ, you now have the power over sin. God has the power over sin. And number three, God's grace saves from the presence of sin. I'm looking forward to the day. Well, I'm going to be glorified. When I see King Jesus, I'm going to be made like Him. And so will you if you're a believer in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, the Bible says one day your sin nature is going to be gone. The curse of sin will be gone. God's people need to say amen to that. Glorification. So we see God's grace in all three ways here. He's saving from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. This is the key text, and a lot of the things we see are really coming around this here. So love godliness is the third priority for any of God's servants. How do we see this evidence, though? Well, our text gives many evidences of how this works itself out. Number one, godliness is evidence in healthy churches. It's evidence in healthy churches. If you look at the very beginning of chapter 2, notice it says, But as for you, but as for you, teach what accords with sound or healthy doctrine. And then chapter 2 is going to go on to name all the various groups of the church. And you're going to fit into one of these categories. So let's, let's read about these various groups. We've got older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And then it even mentions the slaves. So you're going to fit into one of those groups, by the way. Every one of you here fits one of these categories. See, notice what the Scripture says to you. The first group that's mentioned is the older men in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And that's it, just that one verse. And by the way, if you're wondering, am I considered an older man according to the Bible? What is, what is an older man? As far as I can tell, you have to be 60 or over. So if you're 60 years old and older, as far as I can tell, you fit the category of older man. So if you're 59 and younger, you're the younger man. Okay. So we're going to see all these various groups within the church, and this is how godliness is lived out in the church. A lot of character qualities here that, that you need to strive to emulate. So that's older men. The second group, oh, by the way, before I get to the second group, I, I found uh, the life of John Wesley to be very challenging. I don't know how much you know about John Wesley, uh, but I'm very much challenged by this and rebuked in many ways. But as, as I'm going to read you a little bit about John Wesley, just keep this in mind, okay? God doesn't make us all the same. So in some, some respects, you might, you might say, whoa, you might just get crushed as you read about these godly men in church history. God didn't make you all the same, all right? That's fine. You, you do the best with the ability that God gives you, all right? But I'm, I'm amazed that even though John Wesley was 83 years old, I, I'd heard that uh, by that time, by the age of 83, he had traveled 250,000 miles on horseback. He had preached more than 40,000 sermons. He produced more than 200 books and pamphlets. 
but yet John Wesley regretted he was unable to read and write more than 15 hours a day. And he said the problem was his eyes. He, he just became too tired, too weak after doing that for 15 hours a day at the age of 83. And he said at his 86th birthday, he admitted to an increased tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 in the morning. And he's complaining about this. And I'm thinking, whoa. I've never felt that good my whole life. <laughs> I've never had that kind of ability. It's just not the way God made me. And you know what? It, I, I wish I could do that, but if God didn't make you that way, then don't, don't fret about that too much. But uh, we praise God for how he did use John Wesley. Even as an older man, we, we see some of these things lived out in his life, and we can thank God for that. But how about you older women, you 60 and above women? What, what does God have to say to you? Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. There's a lot of pressure on women today. So, there's a lot of good things there. Hopefully you'll take to heart. Again, we don't have time to get into great depth on what the Scripture says, but I pray the Holy Spirit would apply it where it need be. How about you younger women, you 59 and below women? What does the Scripture have to say to you? Well, let's start at the end of verse 4, because it says that uh, the older women were are supposed to train you to love your husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. You notice there's a lot of pressure on particularly uh, younger women today. It seems that it's often coming from these radical feminists who somehow believe uh, that wives being homebound is some form of bondage coming from male chauvinist pigs and that uh, somehow women need to be freed from this bondage. Have you noticed this kind of philosophy being taught in our world? It's nothing new, by the way. It's not a new philosophy. And so they insist that women need to be free as men to work outside the home, doing whatever job they want to do. Is that what God says, though? That's not what God says. It doesn't mean that women can't work outside the home. In fact, if you read Proverbs 31, woman, she, she did work. But her number one priority, her heart was in the home. Okay? That's where your heart has to be. So, so you women who, who do work outside the home, you got to be careful that your heart is not taken out of the home. That's the challenge you're going to have. That's the challenge you're going to get from your workmates, your friends, and your family. They're going to they're try to pull your heart. And they may have already done that, and you don't even know it. The challenge is keep your heart in the home. It's not an issue of how many hours do you spend in the home, per se, but... Where, particularly, where's your heart? Where's your mind? Okay? Just keep that in mind, all right? All right, but you, you men, uh, younger men, so 59 and younger, this is you. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And then starting in verse 9, it mentions slaves, or maybe in our modern context, this would imply to employees. So if you work for somebody else, there's some, some practical application here for you. So look at verse 9. Bond servants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, or, or that the idea is they're stealing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now you need to understand something about the time that Paul was writing here. 
So around, remember around year 60 to 65, the Roman Empire depended on slaves for most of its labor. Uh, it was an essential part of society. It was an essential part of their economy. Many slaves were abused. It doesn't say all of them were. Many of them were given great responsibility. Some were given great authority in running the household, the master's household. Sometimes they might be given a family farm or some other business. So slaves were allowed to, uh, usually often able to marry and have their own families. Slaves sometimes were given small pieces of land on which they could grow their own crops to feed their family. And I find it interesting that even though this sort of thing was happening during this day and age, we don't see God necessarily condemning slavery, do we? Paul's not offering any judgment on on whether or not slavery is, is fair or if it's morally right or wrong. That's not the point. He's just recognizing that it exists and, and he's dealing with it here. He's dealing particularly with the attitude that Christian slaves would have toward their, their masters. It didn't matter, by the way, it didn't matter if, the, if their master was a believer or an unbeliever. These are the kind of attitudes that should be a part of your life. By the way, there's great application for those of us who do have employment. Okay, in our employment, look at these things here. This is how you're to work. So we, we've seen godliness evidenced within the church, but it moves on to chapter 3, and we're going to see how godliness is evidenced in our life. Our, particularly, is your life right? Right living? And we have a command starting here in chapter 3, verse 1. Very interesting command, because it says, remind them. The command is, Remind. What are we to be reminded of? Well, a lot of things will look in chapter 3. But remind them that this is people in the church here. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. It's a command here. We're to remind ourselves. It applies to all of the things we're going to see in this passage. There's a lot of things that Paul reminds them of, as well as even us today, we need to be reminded of these things. What are we to remember? Uh, Part of our problem is we we know a lot of things and we forget them. These are things you need to remember. You want to have right priorities as you serve God? Remember, number one, your duties. Remember your duties. Uh, We already read verse 1, that you're to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, be obedient to be ready for every good work. But look at verse 2. You're also to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Seven Christian duties that apply to all believers, by the way. doesn't matter what time period you live in. These are appropriate for all believers, all times, all ages. Notice Paul says to be submissive to secular government. And I will remind you, it was the Roman Empire in charge at this time. Okay? As if we think we have it bad enough, it was far worse then. Okay? So we are even to be submissive to governments like the Roman Empire. We're also to be obedient to human authorities, it says. Be ready for every good work. It says to speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show courtesy to all. Well, we we could park on each one of those, but you you get the point. There's various duties that the Scripture gives us that we need to remember. Verse 3 reminds us to remember our former condition. Remember your former condition. This is for you Christians, by the way. If you have never accepted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, this doesn't this is not you, okay? This is you, sorry. But but as believers, this is what we used to be. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. 
That's the life of an unbeliever. That's one who doesn't know Christ. It's important that we remember our former condition. Why is that important? You need to remember where you've come from. It has an impact on your present life. It will have an impact on your future life. It will have an impact on whether or not you live a godly life, a life that's pleasing to God. So remember your former condition. And number three, remember your salvation. It's a wonderful text. I love these verses. They are precious. Verses 4 through 7. Notice this. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. My friend, it's important that you not forget God and what He's done in your life. Every aspect of our salvation is from God. And by the way, it's from God alone. We see various aspects of salvation here in the text. Let me just highlight a few that that are precious to me. We need to remember we're saved by the kindness of God. My friend, do you realize God doesn't have to save anybody? He would be totally just in saving no one. If everybody spent eternity in hell, that would be okay. I don't like the thought of that, but it would be just, because that's what we deserve. It's only by God's kindness that anyone is saved. We're not saved... Uh, by the way, the other thing I notice here is we're not, we, we, we do not save ourselves by self-effort. God is the one who saves. You can't do enough good works to earn salvation. We're saved by God's mercifully deciding to grant the washing of regeneration. What is that? Well, when you were saved, if you're a Christian, you were cleansed of your sin. God took your sin away. As far as the east is from the west. We see here in the text our salvation came through our renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God in your life. We were saved by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. In other words, I remember when I was young, when I became a believer in Jesus Christ, I was struck by the fact that Jesus died on the cross in my place. I deserved to hang on the cross for my own sin, but He took my place. He was my substitute. And that's what it means. He was a substitutionary sacrifice. And we see that in the text, and we also see we were saved by God's grace. Amen for all those things. Those are the things you and I need to continually preach to ourselves every day. But we also see in verse 8, we need to remember our mission. Remember your mission. You say, what is our mission? Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. They're profitable. What is our mission? To glorify God is the overarching mission of all people. But how do you do that? By profiting people. In this text, it says you can glorify God by profiting people. Well, how, how do you do that? Verse 8 says to insist on these things. What are those things? It, it's the things he just talked about. The truths he just talked about. Like, for example, if you look at the end of verse 7, he talks about the hope of eternal life. Those kind of things. In other words, you evangelize through your words and actions. Evangelize through your words and actions. Hopefully they're consistent with one another. So that's our mission, to glorify God by helping people. The people there is just general people. Not talking about anyone in particular, just people in general. Help them. What's the best way you can help an unbeliever is, is tell them about Jesus. 
Tell them what Jesus has done in regards to their sin. Well, in the next section, Paul's going to mention four categories of personal relationships in the church that are very, very important. So we see that godliness is evidence here in personal relationships in the church. So he gives four different groups in the church, and, and we see how these personal relationships should be worked out. And he gives some, some very practical application here. The first group he mentions in verse 9 is the false teachers. How do you deal with these false teachers? What do you do with them? Well, look what Paul says, verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So how should we handle error? Paul commands us here to avoid. That is a command. That is not an option. In other words, don't waste your time arguing with these morons. And I say morons because it's interesting. The word foolish, the English word foolish, comes from a Greek word. And that word sounds very much like moron. <laughs> you know what a moron is? They're foolish people. They're people who are, aren't teachable. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're, they might listen to you, but they're never going to change. Paul says, don't waste your time with those morons. They're foolish. These are the kind of people who don't believe the Bible is the final rule of authority and faith and practice. So it's a waste of time. We're to avoid them. What are we to avoid? Well, it's not necessarily the person. It's, uh, but, but it can include the person here. But in the single verse, it's interesting, Paul mentions four categories of error that should be avoided in particular. He mentions the foolish controversies. You see that in verse 9? Foolish controversies has to do with the senseless discussion or the worthless debates that just go on and on and on and never, never get where it needs to go. A lot of people waste a lot of time in evangelism in particular arguing with these kind of people. Genealogies is another category of error that needs to be avoided. These were allegorical interpretations of the genealogies you'll see in your Bible. Of course, the Jews love their genealogies. And by the way, all Scripture is profitable, including genealogies. And most of them will point you to Jesus. Okay? So if you miss Jesus, most of the time you've missed the whole point of the genealogies. But what they were doing is they were coming up with these fanciful wonderful explanations of genealogies that were just allegorical, they weren't literal, and uh, missed the whole point. And so Paul's saying, that's, ugh, that's a bunch of rubbish, okay? Don't, don't go down those rabbit trails. And he also mentions dissensions. This is just self-centered rivalry. It's, it's very, being contentious about truth. Some people just love to argue. You know, that. Even if, even if they agree with you, they'd probably take the other side just because they love arguing. You know, there's some people like that. Paul says, it's a waste of time. And he also mentions the fourth one there is the quarrels about the Mosaic law. And when he mentions law, he's talking about those, the, particularly the first five books in your Bible. The, this, these, these people who wanted to do that were adding works to salvation. Well, let me just say this. If you're struggling with that, that issue was settled in the Jerusalem Council, I think, in Acts 15. Paul talks about that in the book of Galatians. So if you're, if you're wondering what does the Bible say on that, read the book of Galatians. The second group Paul mentions in verses 10 and 11 is, a, is the divisive people in the church. If you have any divisive people in the church, how do you handle this group? Look at verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So how we handle divisive people? Notice Paul says you give them a warning, and if they don't repent after one or two warnings, then they're get rid of them. Why do you need to do that? Because a divisive person is not going to submit to God's Word. They're not in submission to godly church leadership. 
These kind of people are a law unto themselves. They have little concern for truth and spiritual unity in the church. They're causing disunity. Get rid of them. Treat them like gangrene. All right. Number th- the third group is the fellow servants. Fellow servants of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times we look at Paul's final instructions in the in his letters, and we kind of just quickly go over that and say, uh, it has nothing to do with me. But notice what he says about his fellow servants in verse 12 here. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So, we don't know a lot, a whole lot about some of these individuals here, but the point is this, okay? How, how you treat your fellow servants, because we're all servants of God, hopefully. How do you treat them is important. How you treat other people is going to show what is your relationship with God. See, remember the third priority of God's servants is godliness. You're to love godliness. If you love God and you, you love being a godly person, it's going to show in how you treat other people. We have some very practical things that are being worked out here. This kind of spirit should be evident in all healthy churches. We have mutual support and care that's being characterized here in Christ church. And the last group Paul mentions is faithful friends. We all need faithful friends. These are the kind of people you can rely upon. Look what Paul says in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul had faithful friends. He had many unfaithful ones too, but... Every Christian is, notice he says, every Christian is to learn to devote themselves to good works. Why? Why would you want to do that? Why should you do that? So that you can help people who have urgent needs. See, life's not about you. It's about others, helping others. It's not possible for a pastor or even a group of elders and deacons to to, uh, meet the various needs of a congregation. By the way, not only is there not enough time for a pastor or even a group of pastors to meet everybody's needs, God doesn't give all of the spiritual gifts to one man. God's spread out the spiritual gifts amongst a congregation, hopefully, so that the congregation as a whole can serve one another with those spiritual gifts. By the way, beyond that, a loving and serving church should be a beacon to the world. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Your good works are to show the Father so that the world will look to God the Father and they would glorify Him <laughs> all because of your good works. So ultimately, it's not about you again. It's, it's, it's about God. And so our loving, a loving servant church is going to be a beacon to the world. It should be attracting unbelievers to Jesus Christ. So my question is, my friend, are these right priorities for God's servants being lived out in your life? Just think about this. Are you embracing grace? Are you teaching healthy doctrine? And are you loving godliness? These are things that are vitally important to God. These are things vitally important to a healthy church. And my friends, these are the priorities that you need to have. The question is, do you? Are you living these things out on a consistent basis? Yes, we all fail. And when we do, we need to get up. We look to a just and a faithful God who will forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we go on. We serve the living God as best we know how, with the light He's given to us, the abilities He's given to us, these are all things we can do. These are the right priorities for God's servants. Embrace grace, proclaim healthy doctrine, and love godliness. 
And it's all because of grace. It starts with grace. It's, it's the whole life of grace, and it ends with grace. My friends, embrace grace. That God would enable you to live these priorities out in our church and in our individual lives. Let's pray.